Hello and welcome to Prejudice and Pride. I'm Claire Balding and I'll be taking you on a tour of some of the creative, dramatic and surprising histories of National Trust places. 2017 marks the 50th anniversary of the partial decriminalisation of homosexuality in England and Wales. To celebrate the significance of this anniversary, the National Trust is opening up its creaking oak closet and exploring how lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans and queer folk have helped to both shape and preserve the house the collections, the gardens and the landscapes in the Trust's care. I'm so pleased you're joining us for Prejudice and Pride. When we look back at our history and culture in the UK, it's sometimes easy to think that queer culture has been pushed to the margins and made invisible. In fact, LGBTQ communities often took centre stage in performances and fancy dress parties. The performers and parties of the past have become the drag kings and drag queens, pride festivals, queer pubs and gay nightclubs of today. They are places and events where freedom reigns, where performers and audiences alike can be playful and outrageous. Queer people are often stereotyped as being theatrical, colourful or flamboyant, none of which are negative, I don't think, but queer performance can be a chance to celebrate and cement identities. So here with me to discuss parties and performances and other things is the leading queer historian Matt Cook and Sariel Davis, who wrote and is starring in How to Win Against History as the dancing Marquis Henry Paget. We're going to get a fabulous description of him shortly. It's on tour through the summer and autumn and will be at the Young Vic in December. Can we just first clear up the word queer? Matt, what does queer mean and why are we now really happy to embrace it and use it in a positive way? It's such a problematic word in many ways because, of course, it was the word that was used against queer people in the past and some of the older men I've interviewed really resent its use now because they saw that was the term that was hurled at me as abuse. But since then, I think it's been reclaimed as a kind of politicised identity and also it's used in academia in a way to kind of be an umbrella term because when we look into the past... We can't really find lesbians and gays because these were terms that weren't circulating 50, 100 years ago. And so it's a way of kind of thinking about identities or ways of being that were a bit eccentric to the norm. Serial, what role has campness played in gay men's survival and sort of promotion? I have this definition of camp that I don't know where it comes from. I may have dreamt it. It's to walk as though walking, to drink a cup of tea as though drinking a cup of tea. So it's the sort of, you're doing a thing, but you're also performing doing the thing. How I see it is like if you have this sort of camp mentality, you walk down the street, but you're like, hey, I'm walking down this street. I'm feeling faint. I shall put my hand <laughs> to exactly, my forehead. Exactly. It's, it's, yes. Everything is sort of observed, which has obviously this sort of really dark undercurrent to it, but it's a really joyful thing. One of the things I love about camp is the way it absolutely exposes the fact that everybody is performing. So the way in which macho men are performing their masculinity is a performance. And what camp does is it absolutely exposes that. It says this is all play acting. And you can absolutely see that when you look across history in the past, because the way in which people were masculine or feminine has changed from century to century. We have a very different image of masculinity in the 18th century than we do in the 19th. So we can see that these ideas of gender are kind of created and kind 
kind of passed on and performed and pastiched and they shift and change over time. Yes, you sort of think of those long courtier wigs. Yeah, absolutely. That, that was once the norm for, mm-hmm. for men of a certain status. Why are our women not seen to share these labels? Like, it, It's quite rare to hear a woman described as camp. I don't know. Really? Like, you know, there's the sort of the fag-hag archetype and like, you know... Anyone who sort of enjoys the sense of sort of performativity around what they do, I think, is camp. Mm. I mean, I certainly describe a lot of women as camp. I don't know. What you I, do I, I also think that performance and dressing up has been hugely important in terms of forming a sense of identity around lesbianism. And you only have to think about the 1920s and the kind of adaption of those kind of androgynous dress of the early 1920s into the ways in which Radcliffe Hall was dressing or the Gateways Club and those butch femme role plays and role playing, which was a way of being in the world, of finding a place in the world, but also undermining some of those kind of roles in some ways. Talking of dramatics, Serial, we must get you to describe the wonderful Henry Padgett, who you you embody in How to Win Against History. What did he look like? What was he like? And and who was he? He was the fifth Marquis of Anglesey, which is where I'm from. And this gives you some context. The first Marquis of Anglesey was big hero of the Battle of Waterloo. And then I used to go and visit Plas Newydd, which is the Padgett family seat. And you'd see all these and like these big memorials to the second Marquis, third Marquis, fourth Marquis. And then when I went there, there was, as a kid, there was Above the doormat at the back, there was a little laminated sheet of photocopies of pictures of Henry. There's not many pictures of him because all of the evidence got burnt after he died. But if you look at him, he looks like sort of Freddie Mercury drove through Elizabeth Duke in a sellotape suit. Like he's just wearing <laughs> everything at the same time. He looks way ahead of his time and sort of timeless and like he's got a big moustache and he just looks like he does not give a fig. And he's got wings on his head. And I would just look at these as a kid and I'd be... Because I wasn't a very sort of fabulous kid. I'd look at them and you just see this sort of lost soul peering out of them because he is a man completely out of his time. Like his family completely... It seems like the family completely rejected him. And there was this thing underneath the photograph saying after he died, his family burnt every record that he existed. So I just saw that and I, this sort of little bell of adolescent outrage rung. I'm not like, this shall not be. So I, because I believe in swift and decisive action, I decided to make a musical about it 20 years later. So. <laughs> It's quite useful to look at this idea of performance further back in history. And Matt, John Shute, in the 17th century, transformed the vine in Hampshire. What do we know about his life? He had the resources to go on the grand tour. He visited Italy and France and so on as cultured, rich young men will want to do. The idea of the Grand Tour was really to give you an education, to cultivate good taste. And what it did, I think, for Shute is it allowed him to draw into his circle other bachelors who, when they came back to London, formed this, what became known as the Committee of Taste with Horace Walpole, who's of Strawberry Hill, and the poet Thomas Gray, along with some others. I mean, first of all, they were markedly effeminate. This was something that people commented on. But what they really set their mind to and their money to was redesigning their homes and collecting and experimenting and pushing the bounds of architecture. They were performing, if you like, with their domestic architecture. And you might say, well, what's queer about that? 
And I think there's something very interesting and maybe slightly subtle, maybe it goes back to what we've been saying about Henry Padgett, that what it could do is kind of give degraded passions, degraded desires, some sort of cultural credibility and purpose. So there was an inventiveness of pushing the bounds of taste and also doing something that had real cultural credence. These men were experts. They collected a phenomenal amount of things. They were real connoisseurs. And so despite the fact that there was gossip and rumour about them, they could say, well, we're advancing British and English culture for posterity in a way that became their project. I was very interested in what Cyril was saying about gathering up the past as well, because what they're doing with the classical references, of course, is they're on the one hand touching something that the 18th and 19th century was very familiar with, the Hellenic, the Roman, but they were also slyly referring to a different way of doing things in the past. And also an age when homosexuality, frankly, was barely frowned upon because everybody was. Everybody was at it. Serial, Matt, thank you both very much. I feel as if Henry Padgett has been in the room with us and we're going to get even closer to him now because over in Wales, EJ has been visiting Plas Nawith, Henry Padgett's former home, to find out more about the man behind that magnificent mask. Plas Nawith is a dramatic manor house overlooking the Menai Strait. It's the country seat of the Marquis of Anglesey, it's here at Plas Noeth that the snake-dancing, cross-dressing fifth Marquis of Anglesey, Henry Cyril Paget, lived in unsurpassed splendour. Paget was immensely wealthy, with an income of around £110,000 a year. That's around £8.5 million in today's money. He lived an almost unfathomably lavish lifestyle, indulging in the very finest fashions, furs, jewellery, boats, and even, it's said, modifying his car to spray perfume from the exhaust. Despite living a short life from 1875 until 1905 and dying at just 29 years old, the fifth Marquis still lived a full and adventurous life. He converted the family chapel into a 150-seat theatre called The Gaiety that was free to all locals to attend, toured with his own theatre company and managed to spend the estate's entire fortune we don't know for sure that Paget had affairs with other men. We do know that his family papers were for some reason destroyed and that his marriage that was, according to the public record office, unconsummated and impotent, was dissolved after two years in 1900. He often had himself photographed in historic costumes and cross-dressing in women's clothes, and these photographs of him give us some idea of his distinct queerness. Right, now I'm on my way up to the house now and I'm going to talk to some of the trust staff who can tell me a little bit more about Henry's life. I'm here with Angela Owen, a volunteer who's been here for 14 years, is it, Angela? It is 40. This is my 14th season. Angela, what kind of character was the fifth Marquis? We know that he was a very eccentric character, uh, we know that he spent a lot of time here at Plas Noeth. While he was here, he did change the chapel, the, the, the family chapel, into a theatre. He called it the Gaiety Theatre. He put on productions that were mainly light-hearted, pantomime. He, he would do his famous butterfly dance. He definitely spent an awful lot of the family's money. And I believe this resulted in what we know as the 40-day sale. Yes, it did. I believe that, of course, 
a lot of what was sold was sold at very much less than its value. They did have to sell a tremendous amount to pay, to pay off his debts. I'm not sure that they had any issues with his actual lifestyle. I think the issues were more of the fact that he had spent the money that he'd spent. There's no doubt about it, he was an eccentric character, uh, especially for somewhere like Anglesey. Thank you for your time spent talking with me. It sounds like he was a wonderful, colourful character and that you've probably had a nice time volunteering here over the years. Yes, we do it because we love it. We love the house. We believe in what the National Trust is doing. And we do think that it is very nice to have these colourful characters within the Trust that we can speak about. Now, records may be scarce about Henry Cyril Paget's life, but we do know a lot about his clothes and his performances. I'm meeting Shelley Tobin, costume curator for the Trust, and we've got some great items from the house's collection here. Shelley, what are we looking at? In front of us here are some of the books of sale from the 40-day auction of all of his bits and pieces. It's a fascinating list, isn't it? There's hundreds of items. Let's hear about some of them. Read the late Marquis of Anglesey's sale of theatrical costumes, furs, coronation robes, fancy articles and so on. Clothing. One beautiful thick blue serge motorcoat with buckled wristbands and white kid collar and buttons. One rich pink silk dressing gown with white silk lining. Two pairs French grey suede shoes, size six. One pair white crocodile leather suede top boots and one pair canvas ditto leather points. Four pairs patent court shoes. Dark tweed overcoat, velvet collar. Wearing apparel. Three pairs fancy silk tapestry slippers. One cape, scotch tweed. Personal clothing. Two yachting suits. Three golf coats. Two tennis jackets. One beautiful white cloth kilt, complete with fox head sporran. One tweed kilt. One evening kilt, plaid. One choice and valuable dressing gown by Charvet of Paris, pink moire silk with steel grey moire silk lining, cuffs, collar and belt. Now, this is his fashionable wear, but we also know that his costume was fashionable as well. Yes, it would have been highly fashionable. He would have had the best, obviously he could afford it at the time. He grew up at least until the age of eight in Paris, we don't know a lot about his life there, but it's very tempting to imagine that he was living a sort of glittering sort of society. And many pieces came from Charvet in Paris, which was a very old established house and was absolutely top quality. Shelley, sadly, and this is often the case with costume and fancy dress, mm. it's very rare that it survives and mm -hmm. we don't have any surviving pieces of Paget's. But what we do have are photographs that he's had taken of himself wearing the costumes. Do you think costume facilitated a way for Paget to express himself? I think it certainly did. And if you think about Victorian society in general, there was a time and a place for dressing up. If you think of it very, very uh, generally in the context of Victorian etiquette, how people were expected to behave, not just in public, but in private as well. There was, for instance, quite a tradition of fancy dress balls, particularly at Christmas and at New Year. 
And around the time of Twelfth Night, when the Lord of Misrule reigned... I'm fascinated by this idea that it's almost costume as the principle of inversion. Mm. Because that's exactly what they called gay men at that time, isn't it? Inverts. Yeah, yeah. And so it gave him the chance to do this outside of these correct times for dressing in fancy dress, though, because he wasn't just doing it at Christmas. No, he was he was doing it other times as well. And maybe the theatre was another uh, another form that gave him licence to dress in the way that he wanted to. It afforded him those opportunities without censure. So even though he's dressing up, he's playing himself. He's know. being who he wants to be. He's dreaming the dream, isn't he? <laughs> We've got in front of us a programme for an ideal husband in 1902, but by this time, Oscar Wilde has actually been put on trial in London for indecency and found guilty. But Paget's here putting it on at the gaiety. Surely that's risque. It is almost provocative, isn't it? In fact, it is very provocative when you think about what everybody was saying about him, what had been written about Oscar Wilde at the time. But he's actually proving that he's not afraid, he's not scared at all to do this. And in fact, at the end of the performance, here he is handing out postcards of himself in this production of a wild play. And the wild plays in particular, he took on tour right around the country. And Shelley, he had so much jewellery. What do you think that says about him? Wow, he did have a lot of jewellery. He was almost obsessed with jewellery. He really knew his stuff. He, he grabbed every opportunity to buy any fabulous gemstone that came onto the market. I think as much as anything else, the wearing of jewellery in his day-to-day -day life marks him out amongst other men at the time. Male Victorian dress at the time was very formal, very sober, usually very dark colours. Barely a handsome, bright waistcoat was seen. The very most, the sort of jewellery that a Victorian gentleman would have worn would be something like a watch chain, maybe a tie pin or a stick pin with a gemstone setting, but not lots and lots of rings on the fingers. Thank you so much for talking to me this afternoon. It's really clear to me that he was a very unconventional man, a brave man, a modern man and a stylish man. A very stylish, a very elegant man, a man of taste, a man who really in many ways was a connoisseur and appreciated fine things, appreciated quality. It's very easy to say, yes, he had pots of money to spend on it and that's fair enough, but you can have pots of money and have absolutely no taste. Thank you, Shelley. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Prejudice and Pride. To hear more in the series, search for Prejudice and Pride in your podcast app or do have a look at the National Trust website.